This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, November 26, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. So today we're joined by Patrick Lovell, co-producer of a five-part documentary series called The Con. You can watch this documentary online for free at thecon.tv. That's all spelled out, T-H-E-C-O-N, thecon.tv. And the subtitle of this documentary is called We Were All Told a Lie. And this docuseries examines the 2007-2008 global financial crisis and the greedy con men, both in the finance industry as well as politicians, who got away with the biggest conspiracy in the history of mankind. Now, most people know very little about what actually happened in our financial system that created this man-made catastrophe. And it is actually more by design than by accident. The folks that made bank during this fleecing of America don't want you to know what actually happened. If you want to talk about how the proverbial deep state operates, you can see it here in action as it attempts to cover up the most horrific crime ever committed. The con brings it all into the light for all of us to see. It truly is a must-watch see a must-watch TV series. And I personally urge that if you watch nothing else, watch this series. Watch the con. It'll open up your eyes. Now, I was personally struck by watching the con because it focused on real-life people who suffered as a result of this massive fraud. Most notably, Addie Polk, who shot herself as the sheriff's deputies knocked on her door to serve a foreclosure notice. Her house had been paid off many years prior, but someone forged her signature on a loan document and used her own home as collateral. So when she couldn't pay the money, she had nobody to turn to except a revolver left behind by her late husband. Even more tragic is that Addie Polk is just the tip of a fraudulent iceberg, and the ship of democracy is heading straight into it. So with all this in mind, Patrick, uh, thank you for joining us on Democracy on the Move today, and welcome to the program. Dan, I... I have to say thank you for that really fabulous introduction. I have been on many podcasts and, and many well-known and nationally known and some affiliated with some global media structures and none have, have provided a more accurate and robust introduction uh, to our prescient work than you. Uh, and maybe that's because when we released it, we were right in the midst of at that time, what was the 2020 election between Donald Trump and of course, uh, soon to become, and now President Joe Biden. But of course, um, we thought that was the perfect time to draw attention from what wasn't being discussed in the general election and the general mood of politics at the time, and uh, to bring attention yet again to that which controls the power of this country. And um, again, we were overwhelmed with something that has now taken up a lot of the oxygen ever since, of course, the January 6th insurrection. And all of that, ironically, is tied directly to what you just described. And the January 6th uh, insurrection, I had you know, heard that many people that had shown up, not the people that seemed to be <clears throat> the, court of, the, the, 
what I would refer to as paid muscle, the, the former cops or current police officers from around the country, as well as, you know, former uh, special force, forces members and, and, and some of the others, in addition to the, uh, the groups that we've seen on trial and, and many of whom have been actually convicted. Um, but the um, others were folks that had been frustrated with the economy, with things that had happened to them, with their lives. Um, and I had heard over and over and over, and this was kind of like the subterfuge to the whole thing, that here were these people that were engaging and surrounding and literally attacking Congress for what they were inferring uh, and pro you know, proclaiming in many ways, uh, although it certainly got a little slippery and deviantly misaligned, but they, they proclaimed corruption as you know the sort of centrifuge for their reason to be there that particular day. And a lot of that stemmed from the massive uh, carnage that the 2008 crisis unleashed on the American people, on the world, and we never recovered. Yeah. And we never got to the bottom of it either, Dan. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that a little bit too, because I think you bring a lot of that to light in the uh, documentary uh, documentary series that you worked on. But uh, I want to bring it a little bit more personal at this point. Um, we'll talk about personal stuff first, because I want to find out what your motivation is. Now, me personally, in the financial crisis, um, I personally lost a boatload of money. Um, I eventually had to sell my home, and I lost every payment of the of the, of the down every every penny of the down payment, which was somewhere north of a hundred thousand uh, dollars, plus any additional equity I had built up in the house, just completely gone. Um, fortunately, I was able to absorb that. Um, wasn't easy, but I was able to absorb it to some degree. Um, but I'm pretty lucky compared to a lot of people. So I'm interested in your story, Patrick. I mean, what happened to you during this crisis and, and uh, how has it motivated you to work on the con? So I've been a producer for 25 years. And uh, prior to that, I've always been, shall we say, engaged in, in the affairs of the arena of power. It's just been something that I've been interested in my whole life. I studied political science. I got an undergraduate degree from Arizona State University. Uh, it was the one subject I actually excelled at. Uh, I always loved the, uh, the all of the pieces of the puzzle that go into understanding how things work and what happened in the past and how that can be a guide to the future. And ultimately you start to see patterns. And my <clears throat> sort of roadmap of my life was, I was always intent to go follow in the footsteps of my dad at the time. My dad is a corporate attorney and I figured I'd go into corporate law. But I had this dream. I had this interest in becoming uh, something in the mix of Hollywood. I loved films. I wanted to write. I wrote screenplays. I wanted to potentially direct downstream. I didn't realize it at the time when I first endeavored my, um, you know, sort of ambition, my objective. I'd moved to Los Angeles in the mid '90s, and um, I started to work in Hollywood. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was naturally a producer. I was a guy that knew just knew how to put deals together. I was a guy that knew how to net, network and knew, knew how to see the big picture. I knew how to uh, align interests. And um, I found myself while working in some of the biggest offices, you know, in Hollywood on the, um, uh, in, in the actual studios. And so I had kind of arrived and I had reached, you know, my dream and I was kind of in the mix and I was moving forward, but I was a little player in a big pond, you know, mm -hmm. but it gave me the opportunity 
to see how things actually worked. And I was amazed, Dan, at that time, um, as I'm getting papers signed and moving them between attorneys and talent and the agents and the executive producers and the producers and how things are going to unwind and, and to what end and being close to how much money is being paid and where it's being paid and how it's being paid. I was always amazed, quite frankly, at how little my bosses knew. <laughs> I was wow. I was always amazed that they depended on this incredible uh, infrastructure to get the job done. And they were basically just a face that was there uh, to be in the media, I suppose, to be someone that people could identify with, to appreciate. But they, they seemed to be, more than anything else, kind of like us, in a sense. They were people that got a lot of credit in the media, but I observed them literally doing nothing. <laughs> I observed <laughs> them literally depending on the power apparatus to get things done. And so what that gave me was this sense of structure, this sense of organization. And as I came up through the ranks, I suddenly learned that, oh, wait a second, I could do that if I could get there. So the question is, how did you get there? Yeah. <laughs> so I went independent and I became a producer and I just kind of you know, struggled and worked through the process to get me to the point where ironically, by the time we were in the uh, 2005, six, seven era, I was ironically giving houses away as a senior producer on a television show that was nationally syndicated. So we were in 97% of the market nationwide. And what we, would, what we would do, the premise of the show was we would go to cities and towns that we had pre-orchestrated a scenario where friends and family of the community would surprise someone with a house. Hmm. And what we would do is we would find the backstory of these people and why they deserve the house. And we would tell, you know, kind of a tears to joy sort of celebration of life of people getting an opportunity of a leg up in society to, you know, uh, get a chance at the American dream because their life had slipped away. And it was a very compelling storyline. And I was in the centerpiece of all of this stuff, being the guy, not the executive producer, but the producer, mm -hmm. making it all happen, putting all of the pieces together. And ironically, my partner and I at the time, we couldn't fully understand what we were doing. We could understand the story, mm -hmm. but we couldn't understand who was funding our show and why. Because we had this executive producer out of the Northwest, they were a company that owned um, Barclays, Barclay, I want to call it Barclay Butera, but I don't know if that was something else. It was, I think it was just Barclays North. They were a, uh, a massive commercial and residential uh, developer and lender, and they did this entire vertical. And it seemed to us at the time, because they were flying around on G5s and they had like this paparazzi with them at all times. They were just very flamboyant. You know, it just seemed like they had endless pockets, Dan. Mm -hmm. And um, and they seemingly did. And yet I never really fully understood their business model. I remember the woman who was the executive producer had a son who was this complete, you know, like frat boy, stuck his head through the wall, drank, uh, you know, to oblivion, puked on himself, just a really you know, a, a, a joke of a human being, but yet the guy that got the front seat in the, uh, the, the, the G5, right? <laughs> and so every once in a while, I'd, I'd work on him because I knew he had a view to what was going on, but I knew he didn't really understand it, but I kind of wanted to understand what, what he saw. And he was like, yeah, well, the way it works is that we sell so many houses all over the country 
and the way we're doing this 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 project is that this is more of a PR. This is a, an advertising stunt to get people interested in our company, so we can sell them mortgages. Okay. In fact, the way the actual reward worked was we didn't give people their houses outright. We give them a year of uh, free mortgages. We gave them twenty thousand dollars in upgrades to the the house. All they had to do was sign on the bottom line. And we thought that was very peculiar. And then one thing leads to another. And in the fall of 2007, suddenly my executive producer and the executive producer from this company uh, got into a argument in front of the set. And I had probably 300 people on set working on this house and everything else. And they got into a literal argument that looked like it was going to come to physical and physical altercation. It, it just it wow. blew up and i didn't understand what was going on i was like talking to my my friend and colleague who would go on to make the con with me and i said to uh we said to each other what what is going on well we didn't understand it at the time but that company went bankrupt overnight they went from literally being this billion dollar high-flying apparatus to going like just evaporating oh, and man. we were like what the hell is that and so fortunately for me, I had saved up enough money. I was in my first house at the time. I had got into a, you know, uh, a subprime loan, many would call it. I, I found out later it was a liar's loan. And it was a friend of mine who was the broker. And I'll, I'll get back to that momentarily. But at the time, I had enough money to go independent. I did. Um, but there was it was only going to last for so long. Right. Um, and my expenses at the time were quite, quite large. And, you know, my, my colleague at the time, it was funny. We were like, okay, something's wrong in Dodge. Not a short while later, um, the economy starts going into this, what felt like a soft recession, but it, it snowballed. And as a producer, I realized all of the people that I used to go to for money on projects didn't have any. Yeah. The money had just dr dried up. And so to 2007 got progressively worse and worse and worse and worse. And I was hanging on by my fingertips by the time we got to the fall of 2008. And I had put together a deal, ironically, with another huge residential developer of high-end real estate in a, a, a glorious ski town, which was the top ski town in the United States, another high net worth guy. And, um, and he calls me, it, I, I'll never forget it as long as I live, because it was right in front of my 40th birthday. My wife and I were kind of like the upwardly mobile set, right? We were planning my 40th birthday down in South Beach, Miami. We had all the beautiful people about to go with us. You know, my beautiful kid was going to be set up with somebody and, you know, all of this like la-di-da kind of stuff that seemingly was, you know, there for me to celebrate, you know, a, a guy who'd spent 40 years getting to the place he'd always dreamed of was suddenly slipping through my fingers in a enormous way. And the only backstop I had was this guy who was this high net worth individual who had already signed papers with me, agreed to become a, pay, uh, a, a partner. We had worked out the money and how it was, what it was going to go to and everything else to build this production company that I had put together. And it just so happened we were going to sign the papers, Dan, on September 15th, 2008. That's the day Lehman Brothers collapsed. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was like nuclear Armageddon. It was like everybody I saw in the high end space, they were all running for cover. You know, I was supposed to get this wire transfer that day. My partner wasn't answering phone calls. He wasn't. And then suddenly he called me for coffee and we met and he said, 
I just lost 70% of my net value. Oh, He's like, wow. I can't move forward. And there I was, literally, literally, as a producer. And a producer is like my grandfather back in the old days. Is he was a, uh, a wildcatter. My grandfather was the biggest influence of my life. He was a very successful guy. But he made his money in wildcatting oil deals, right? So he was the guy that was the producer that put the deals together to get these oil fields and fines and yada, yada, yada. And so that's what you do in, in, in television and film production. It's almost the exact same vertical mm -hmm. and there i was with the money disappearing right in front of my 40th birthday mm. and i went from literally the highest of the high and i was in the depths of hell and i got spit wow. out of this juggernaut and i felt like i was in the middle of the you know uh, of the desert with no clothes with my fam family on my back and i was i was like literally done because i had these huge bills that were coming due and I had no income and I was living on credit because I was I was hedging on the deal. And I guarantee you, I was one of, it turns out, tens of millions of people that yeah. it, it would go on to this this incredible earthquake, earth shattering, life shattering event that, as it turns out, I found out 13 years later, destroyed everything we, we know and then some. And that's what I'm trying to bring to the world, the revelations of what took this long to figure out. So it launched you into this into this mode where you began to investigate things, and then you came up with this idea of creating the con. But it it, it sort of put you back into a position of looking for financing, right? Because um, having watched this series, um, it's a high end series. I mean, you, you did a great job with this thing, and I don't believe that that you could do something like that for free. It took a little bit of uh, financing to do that. So. Were you able to find some other people that were sympathetic to the cause to uh, help you finance so, this? So it's it's a miracle after a tragedy, but it took time. So it took me about three years, I guess, now that I think about it. So two, yeah, it was end of 2008. And it wasn't until the end of 2011 that we were able to put this together. And um, I, I, I lived in a high-end community. So I had you know access in my networks and people I had known for the previous you know, 15, 20 years. Um, that I knew that were potentials for um, investing in specific projects. And, um, but what happened before that was that my wife and I wiped out. We went this horrendous relationship with what many people out there, if you went through the 2008 financial crisis, and many who did that dealt with these types of things for many years after the fact. There was a point sort of apparatus that we called servicers. And what happened was my wife was battling and battling and battling and trying to make sense of things. And and she just finally gave up and I ended up taking over for her in this process. But what she had taught me in, in the interim was that, um, well, and you gotta understand the, the, the scenario here. So I went from a six figure income to literally nothing overnight where we had to scramble to get two jobs a piece and in some cases pick up even more uh, you know, money-making scenarios after the fact, just to keep up with the bare essence of the mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. Because our mortgage was so high at the time. And um, and uh, and we weren't keeping up with it, quite frankly. I mean, we were. I mean, we were hardly keeping up with everything else. It was a, it was a, it was a real pinch. And you know that in its own right, it was like not only did you get, did we get sped out, you know, from a place where we were, you know, doing everything we thought, you know, we had achieved to literally nothing overnight. But our family was so important to us. But yet now we had to find a living. You had to, you know, fortunately we lived in a ski town. Somebody wanted to live in our place, take care of our kid, and then ski for free was kind of the exchange um, while we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. So while we're trying to survive, we're dealing with what these these entities called servicers. And I started to discover immediately, 
and I apologize for any background noise. Um, the servicers were bouncing us around telling us a story. And what they were doing is they would never let you tell talk to the same person twice. Nobody knew what your story was within the apparatus. And they kept kind of pushing you off, telling you one thing and then another. And then they made you make payments, to, like these weird, weird assortments of payments because they worked out like what we called at the time. And a lot of people might remember this as well. There were, and it took us a while to get there first and foremost, but we ended up getting a, uh, what they call a trial modification. But that was that was some time later. I'll never forget my bank at the time. I thought it was my bank. It was Chase. I thought I was dealing with them. I wasn't. I was dealing with another servicer who was actually representing the bank's interest in our loan. And they were the ones supposed to work out the payments. And then ultimately, they would lose our paperwork. They would send us misinformation and all of these other sorts of strange things. And then because I've been in business for a long time, I know that you can renegotiate outcomes and you can, you know, you can recreate, reconfigure your loan strategy and everything else if a bank has aligned incentives with you. But what I'd started to learn was there was this point person, the servicer that was running us around in circles for some sort of outcome that I couldn't understand, but I knew I was getting played. So I took all of that information. I started documenting it. I started doing as much of a deep dive on it as I could because I'm naturally an investigator, I'm naturally a producer. And I started aggregating all this information while I'm watching what's happening in media at the time, what's happening with the Obama administration, because the time frame was, as you may recall, we went from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, but in between was the race between Obama and McCain and everything that that elicited, but they both ended their campaigns towards the end because of the blow up of the global economy. And they came together to try to figure out some sort of solution to what was going on. And I remember the media at the time was telling these stories that, well, there's they, they have to create liquidity for the financial system. I remember them saying this is an issue of liquidity. There was this once in a lifetime, right. you know, kind of event and the media was making it seem like there was this natural occurrence of like an earthquake or a hurricane or some sort of natural disaster. And I knew from my experience dealing with these servicers, wait a second, there's not something, there, there's something not, you know, it didn't, it didn't pass the smell test. And, and, and by the way, in that time period, Dan, the suffering and the, and the anxiety and the stress, I felt like I was in war. You know, I, I, I mean, I had suicidal thoughts. I, there was things that I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand and I was helpless and there was nothing I could do and I was powerless. And so eventually there was this moment in broadcast television where a guy by the name of Dylan Radigan, um, who was on MSNBC at the time, blew up famously. And he started giving this sort of 60,000 foot view of the corruption of America. Mm -hmm. And basically he was making the story that nobody's telling the truth about everything. Everybody's in it. And this whole system is about extraction. And I started thinking to myself, wait a second. This guy is telling the country of what I'm experiencing, but media isn't telling the story of what I'm experiencing. So there's got to be an answer here. So I found this potential investor. He was a guy that was very well known in my community, and I happened to be associated with him because I just am a good skier, and I happened to hang out with a lot of good skiers, and he was a good skier, and it was one of those things. And so I had entree because I was just kind of part of the club because we were all just basically hardcore skiers, if you want to know the truth. And so he agreed to meet with me and I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, so what do you want to do? 
and I knew that he had come from a background of, you know, all sorts of big money. I knew his family was in Hollywood. In fact, I knew his family literally owned Universal Studios at one point. I knew his father was an executive producer on a bunch of stuff, and I knew he had interest in film and cinema and everything else. And his family was one of the biggest, you know, um, rags to riches stories in the history of the world. And, you know, my plan was to go into his sort of uh, being and appeal to him that his family rose to great prominence and wealth from literally obscurity because of the opportunities that this country provided through the American dream and all of those wars that had been won prior to, um, you know, uh, this sort of, you know, time period in his family's life. And I'll never forget it. You got to, you got to understand what a miracle this was. I was literally down to $57 in my account. Wow. I had $57 and I went to him and I, I took him to lunch. He agreed to meet me for lunch. And we went to what I knew was one of his, his, his favorite restaurants. It was an expensive restaurant. My game plan was, look, whatever he's going to you know, order is going to be the entire meal. And I'm going to get like the cheapest salad if I can. If not, I won't get anything. And I'll just say that I'm not hungry. And then I'll you know, hopefully be able to get out of it, uh, you know, afford the bill. And I, I took a chance. And I went into this, this conversation with him. And I, you know, I kind of explained to him what I was going through. But the impetus was, look, man, I was once the upwardly mobile middle class, dynamic middle class. I've got a college education. I live by the book. Here I am with my family. I'm living the 101 American dream. And yet all of a sudden my entire world imploded upon me. And I wanted to tell that story, but I didn't know exactly where it was going to lead. And I, and I explained to him I had all of these sorts of things that were running me, you know, uh, basically uh, giving me misinformation. And I knew something wasn't right. And I knew that there was something behind the door that these servicers were involved with that I had to discover what that was. Sure. And he said, I'll tell you what, all of this sounds way too complicated from what I'm willing to spend. But if you can figure out how we went of, by, and for the people to of, by, and for the corrupt corporations, then I'm in. Hmm. But he's like, let me think about it. Now, suddenly, and the bill came, and it was like literally something like $52. So I escaped with my, you know, like- $5 left. I mean, it was like, oh my God, you know? And I mean, like I, I had anxiety, like it was unbelievable. But I was like, you know what? He didn't shut me down. He didn't say no. Maybe there's a chance. Suddenly, the Occupy Wall Street movement kicked off. Yeah. And he called me the next day and he said, how fast can you move? And I said, immediately. He said, send me a budget. So I called my buddy that I worked with on that previous show. And I said, hey, man, uh, we might have an opportunity here. Let's put a budget together for this. And we did. And we were off to the races. My my partner at that time said, let's see what's going on. And that was the beginning of what ultimately became in my my uh, my partner always referred to me as Captain Ahab chasing the white whale, because <laughs> as we continued down this path, the story got bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. And it kept getting more cloistered behind even though at that time there was a cottage industry of people talking about and telling stories about the 2008 great financial crisis, nobody was telling the story that I was living. Yeah. And so I was like, wait a second, what are they all missing? And lo and behold, after 13 years and millions and millions of dollars, we created the con, which I'll, I'll give it to you right now, is the $4.5 million budget to get the $33 trillion truth 
that is now the $70 trillion truth that the power of the system has completely been able to hide from the world, except for those that are in on it, which are the power, while the rest of us are in chaos. Yeah. That's a beautiful story because, you know, it really is you're you're at the end of your rope, literally, financially speaking, anyways. And so, you know, you 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 came out of this and you know we we talked about, you know, I talked about the con earlier. I talked about Addie Polk in the introduction. Um and this is where I think the con really is different than a lot of other stories because you're telling the story of the people that really suffered, yourself included, but you really focused on a lot of other people. And because of that, the story becomes, uh, it really pulls on your empathetic, your ability to empathize with people. And let me ask you this, just out of curiosity, uh, what, uh, was it difficult to find other people such as yourself that suffered like this? Or was it easy? No, no. But to, to find people who understood what was going on was at first very difficult. But as time wore on, it became very simple because I found networks of people. Mm -hmm. But the Addie Polk story is an absolute miracle. So my partner, Eric Vine, he has a wife that's from a town called Akron, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And he was living in, in uh, Orange County at the time in a place called... Uh, God, it's my favorite surf spot in the world. Um, it's where Nixon's uh, uh, West Coast White House was. Why can't I think of the name of the town? Oh, down by Newport Beach, that area, or further south? Oh, it's, oh it's uh, south. San Clemente. San Clemente. Yeah, God, yeah. I don't know why. Every once in a while, I get jammed up on names. And I love San Clemente. So my partner, Eric, was living in San Clemente at the time. And uh, he had built uh, kind of first partition of our studio at that time. And his wife had... Um, wanted to go back to Akron because of some things that were happening in their personal lives. And um, we were exploring the story. I had done a lot of the high, high level sort of research to understand that there were whistleblowers within all of these financial institutions that had seen wrongdoing that were all over different pieces of media that I was interested in. And so an initial part of my research I was um, formulating how the CEOs of all of these corporations seemingly were ensconced in what appeared to me to be a crime syndicate. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't really fully contextualize what I was experiencing on the ground level with these servicers and then the CEOs ensconced in their, you know, in their in their Wall Street behind the curtain, you know, uh, um, you know, velvet, you know, lounges or whatever we might want to. Think of these, you know, it's, it's so Orwellian. It's like there's Sauron, you know, uh, way up in, in the towers above all else. And nobody can understand what's actually happening inside the machine. And so I was in the process of putting all of these things together. But I, I, I had gotten a pretty good sense on the business side, what was happening between what we call, you know, the, 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 the wholesale lenders that were the countrywides and the Ameriquest. And then ultimately, I had learned that there was this connection with this uh, warehouse lending between them and the um, the uh, investment banks of Wall Street, and then eventually the two big to fail banks on Wall Street. And I was like, wow, that is an interesting apparatus. And I was trying to put together, well, how did the highest levels understand what they were doing was wrong? And, and I didn't really understand the full vertical. Now, Eric is not somebody from my background. My, my partner, Eric, is from a 
more working class background. His background, um, I, he always tells the story that he was from Mexican, Irish, and Japanese heritage. So everybody in his lineage had at one point, you know, wiped out in history. So he had a really, oh, and sorry, and Navajo Indian, among others. Well, those were the four uh, that, that const constructed who he is. But, uh, and he looks like Johnny Depp, and he's got this long hair, just a really interesting guy. But he's a genius. He ended up going to USC on a scholarship and some other things. And, uh, but the way he was always looking at this problem was from the ground up. Hmm. He was looking at it from the victims on the ground. And we had been looking, and he had been, like, as I'd been tackling the CEOs and the, and the, uh, the corporate boards and, you know, the C-suites and all of those things, he was tackling uh, stories on the street as well as stories in um, the um, pensions. And he was starting with CalPERS because he was right in the middle of it uh, down in Orange County, which blew up all of the teachers' pensions unions and his mm -hmm. wife teacher. And so she was hit by it there. So he was trying to connect those dots. But one thing led to another. She wants to move back to Akron. So he decides to move back to Akron. I was able to realize the budget for the kind. But the first thing that happens when he moves back to Akron was he opens up this uh, this and he's doing all sorts of research. He opens up this uh, New Yorker article about Addie Polk. And as it turns out, she lived within a mile and a half from where he moved. Wow. And so he started to study the story and he's like, Patrick, I think this is the vertical we're looking for. Now, as an aside, he happens to say to me over and over and over for like the previous year, maybe the year and eight, uh, you know, about 18 months, he kept saying, this has got to be a RICO story. And so we started explaining and exploring and understanding all things that are involved with RICO. And we, the more we looked at it, the more we were starting to think, my God, this is a RICO story. So we started to tackle this. Now, Addy just real quickly, RICO being the, um, the um, racketeering uh, charge organization. Okay. Yeah. Those are, those are the statutes and the legal remedy to be able to tackle the mob. That's what they were. That's what they were designed to do, and that they came into being pretty much with the two, with the uh, leadership of of all people, Rudolph Giuliani in Manhattan, battling the five mob family families of New York back in the seventies. So we began to understand all of the elements that are involved with RICO as we were piecing this together, and we're going, "Oh my God!" Because we knew as producers that you know mainstream media loves a crime story. Well, this was becoming a a, a crime story, right? right? And to your point. How does it connect to regular people? So he discovered this Addie Polk story, and it was incredibly tragic, as you had so uh, beautifully illuminated in the opening. And um, and just because I've, I've covered so much else, I'll just kind of briefly re-encapsulate her story because it's so incredible when you consider what it led to. So Addie Polk um, was being evicted from her house. And as it turns out, while the sheriffs were coming after she had tried desperately to tell anybody who would listen that she owned her house, that she lived in her house for four decades, that she was being served foreclosure notices um, uh, wrongly because she could prove that she owned her house. And so she had out on her paper the day of this tragic event uh, on her table, these three papers, one from Fannie Mae, the other from Citigroup, uh, which initially wrote the loan and, and it got uh, then sold into Fannie Mae. And then it was insured by AIG three of the biggest players in the 2008 financial crisis. And so when the sheriff came to evict her, she pulled out her husband, Robert Polk's um, uh, handgun, and she shot herself in the chest five times so she wouldn't go homeless. And she wanted to die in the house that she had lived with that her, 
husband had bequeathed to her because in the African-American culture, it was such an enormous achievement of, to create home ownership for people such as Addie and Robert Polk, who came during the Great Migration to uh, immigrate to the industrial Midwest during World War II. They had overcome Jim Crow. They had overcome uh, everything to ultimately achieve the American dream. And here it was in uh, 2008 being taken from her illegally, and yet nobody was listening to her. And ironically, all of those papers were on her desk. So as we started to investigate how this story pieced together, as a producer, I had to find the um, sheriff that was tasked to evict her to get his side of the story so that we could you know, learn hour by hour what his process was um, so that we could use that to you know, create the drama through the narration of the actual storytelling. And, um, you know, that's your job as a producer, right? You got to tell stories. And so he didn't want to talk about it. So we actually were relentless. And my colleague um, in our office, who just was amazing, and he got lucky uh, because we knocked on doors and we went from one family member to the next. We were literally harassing the poor guy because we were relentless because we really needed to get a first town to count of what took place. And we finally got this guy and we finally got him to agree to um, – to be interviewed, uh, Sheriff Father, as I recall. And we did this interview. And at the end of the interview, as he was taking off his microphone, as he told the story that we wanted to elicit to be able to, you know, shed light for the people watching the story of how it took place on a moment by moment basis. And he's taken off his microphone and he says to me, hey guys, you might be interested in learning a little bit more about what we discovered. Here, call these guys and he gave me a couple of phone numbers. And then he gave me a couple of names and I started to do the research of who these guys were and what they were all about. And I got the interviews. And as I'm reading through all of this information and some of it coming from the local uh, newspaper in Cleveland called the Cleveland Plain Dealer, I'll never forget this as long as I live because we were going to interview one of the uh, one of the main players. And as I'm reading it, I'm reading it out loud for my colleagues and Eric to hear who was driving at the time to this interview. And it said in there that what these people that had become this uh, white uh, white collar task force that was put together by former attorney general of Ohio, a gentleman by the name of Mark Dan, working with all of these guys that were on his force, that they had discovered a gentleman that had been involved with a regional version of what we were discovering, what Wall Street was in the midst of in a 60 to $80 million fraud case that turned out to be none other than Rico. Hmm. So wow. Addie Polk's tragic death led us to find the only Rico conviction in the entire country that was, pre that was predicated on a multi $600 trillion derivatives grift that destroyed the world. Jeez. Yeah. That's a good, uh, that's, that's a really good uh, tribute to Addie Polk then, that she was able to help illuminate this. And I wanted to, I wanted to focus on the bigger picture because, you know, the information that you found, I, I think other people were, were getting a sense of what was going on. And we had this, you mentioned before, Occupy Wall Street, they were one of the movements that emerged in the wake of this 2008 financial crisis. And um, 
but it doesn't seem like they withstood the test of time in a sense. Occupy Wall Street, as far as I know, was, was, I wouldn't call it a flash in the pan, but they had some internal issues like lack of organization and so on. They never really continued as a group. I know other groups sort of picked up the ball and ran with it. Unfortunately, some of these groups were, you know, right-wing groups. Um, Tea Party. Yeah, the Tea Party being one of them, which I think kind of got folded into MAGA, which it's it's an ironic twist in a sense because the guy that's heading up MAGA, uh, Donald Trump, is actually... It was actually in on the con, right? In a sense, and he's you know he's managed to sort of hijack that whole uh, feeling, the, the ill feeling toward uh, the mistrust toward government and so on. But I, I sort of want to back up because you you mentioned something interesting here because I think it was Suffolk County uh, in in Ohio, their sheriff's summit. De- oh Summit County, okay Summit, and um, they were able to to uh, find a conviction which as far as I know was the only conviction that ever occurred. And here's the thing that that, that gets me, you know, and I have to admit I, I had voted for Obama twice. I was uh, starting around 2011, 2012 when some of this information started to come out, I was and continue to be enraged at and extremely disappointed in his performance because rather than investigating and sending the top con men to jail, he bought into the popular excuses at the time, right? The uh, uh, This was being led by Eric Holder, who was the attorney general from 2009 to 2015, I believe. And they came up with a series of reasons that they did not pursue the, the justice in this area. I think one of it was systemic risk, um, complexity of financial transactions, the high burden of proof. Uh, and the big one was too big to jail assertion, which was... Uh, which said that the, basically the Justice Department under his leadership operated under this too-big-to-fail scenario or philosophy implying that large financial institutions and their executives were essentially above the law due to their size and influence. And this is food to the people on the extreme right that say, you know, okay, here's the deep state in operation, right? We have this right out in the open that people were not prosecuted. People were and, – and really – I think a lot of people don't even understand the details about what went on, and which I think makes it so so important that people watch this documentary because I think once people begin to understand what was what took place, they can begin fixing it. But right now, I think what is it like? Um, Two thousand eight was what maybe sixteen years ago now or something like that, or um, coming up on sixteen years. Um, that's a long time to pass, a lot of water under the bridge, and people still don't have their head around this whole thing and what happened and who the players were. And and most importantly, the fact that people aren't going to jail over this is extremely disappointing, and it, and it, it just generates a lot more mistrust in our government, and it, it produces cynicism. So um, I don't know if there's really any place for you to insert a comment into that. That's sort of like my take on everything. But what's what's your take on yeah, that? You set that? You set that up perfectly. Look, first and foremost, Dan, uh, Donald Trump wasn't, you know, kind of affiliated with this in a sense. He was up to his eyeballs in it in every single direction. And everything that's happening right now with all things Donald Trump is exactly what the government is demonstrating that Trump is guilty of, is exactly what we did not do to hold Wall Street accountable. Now, what Wall Street did was infinitely larger 
than what Donald Trump uh, has been involved with. And you can see how ridiculous it is that our entire Department of Justice and our legal system is having confounding madness taking down Donald Trump, considering, you know, people have been talking about this recently that Sam Bankman freed, you know, from the time he was, uh, you know, arrested and indicted to convicted on seven counts of uh, fraud that happened all within a year. So yeah. anybody who says that, you know, it takes time and this is the wheels of justice and everything else, they're insanely not aware of how things really work. Something is mucking up the gum works in a way that is just insane. And, and I'll just deviate for a moment. Look, you mentioned the Tea Party. Yeah, the, the Tea Party gave birth to MAGA, but ultimately none of it got fully consolidated until Obama didn't do his job because he put in Eric Holder, and this is the biggest disappointment of all to me, really both of them, uh, but particularly Holder. No, I should say they, they equally are catastrophically disappointing um, and, and actually grossly not incompetent by any stretch, corrupt. I, I just got to use the, the term. I know it's very difficult for people who think Obama's the white knight in comparison to uh, Trump, but he's not. Yeah. Eric Holder came from Covington and Burling. Covington and Burling is one of the largest white shoe law firms in the history of the United States. They've been around since the Civil War. Their Washington, D.C. office is literally equidistant. And this isn't by mistake. It's just ironic between the White House and the Federal Reserve, of all things. And they were the ones that were involved with all of the legal maneuverings of what basically set up the entire housing catastrophe, which was called the mortgage electronic registration system. And of course, you know, uh, Eric Holder was a big player at Covington. And the, after his eight years in office and, you know, cleaning up the business, and I dare say he was put into his position because of what he knew and what he could, uh, you know, basically hide on behalf of Wall Street, his client, that he did. And then he went back to a giant and he so went scared. back to them after the uh, after you yeah, left in 2015, right? Million dollars, and I'm I, I, something crazy. It was like 12 million dollars a year, eight to 12 million dollars a year, and plus bonuses. And and I'm listening to this background now, and I'm so sorry this is you know happening at the moment. But the long and the short of it is, if you can hear me above the noise. Oh yeah, I can't hear your noise. I think your microphone is actually doing a good job of canceling it out. So. Okay, fantastic. So ultimately, uh, everything that I revealed to you in the con. Everything that Eric Holder's job was to do, and he did, was that proves, again, alongside of what I've been trying to tell you about the, and I'm shaking my head. You can't hear that? I, I can barely hear it. Was somebody running a vacuum cleaner behind you or something? Or? Yeah, they're doing some yard work, and I apologize. Oh, no, that's okay. It's, it's, it really doesn't come through in this end that much. So. But so... The, it's distracting to me, but I, I'll get back on point because it's such an incredibly important point for your audience and anybody listening to this. So Eric Holder goes through years and years and years of what we call the investigation that led to these incredible settlements that didn't literally come through the pipe until about 2016. Okay. So it was in 2016 that we saw a $16.75 billion settlement with Bank of America. There was a $13 billion settlement with Chase. There was a nine, $5 billion settlement with Goldman Sachs, and then there were several billion after the fact, and so on and so forth. Wells Fargo, the same. Ultimately, there was about $208 billion in fines that the Department of Justice 
um, laid on Wall Street for the 2008 great financial crisis. But there was it was just statement of facts. There was no um, criminal investigations, although in every single settlement, it says in, in, in all of the uh, descriptions that they knew criminal activity was happening. They knew and they reveal everything that I show you in the con, everything that was ultimately revealed in the Federal Crisis Inquiry Commission. They knew who did what, when and how and what, and what the outcome was. But the media didn't understand it. The media didn't have the bandwidth to tell the story because the media was getting paid by the players that didn't want the country to understand this. And they basically poo-pooed the whole thing and pretended like, well, there's nothing to see here and the powers that be are working this out because you can trust Obama. Mr. Change, we can believe in, believe in, who rolled a populist tidal wave to basically create change we can believe in. But meanwhile, he put everybody in power that created this madness to clean up the system for themselves, which leads to the ultimate revelation of what I found on this journey, which takes us back to Trump and ironically, the Tea Party that gave birth to MAGA. So Donald Trump, as you guys might recall, started plagiarizing Bernie Sanders in the 2016 election. He started talking about draining the swamp. He started talking about the whole system's corrupt, that we got to get these guys out of the situation, right? But what did Donald Trump do? Donald Trump put everybody that was in power from the financial system back in power. Yeah. And then ultimately moved forward with further and further deregulation to ultimately line his own pockets. And he was involved with all sorts of stuff. And then lo and behold, COVID came and then was another, you know, mana from heaven for Donald Trump, quite frankly. And that's another story. But let me get to this point first and foremost. So in the uh, all of the legal uh, sort of findings from the civil right, the civil lawsuits that, you know, got $208 billion in fines from Wall Street. And the PR on it was, look, we extracted a pound of flesh and they had to pay billions upon billions of dollars to the government because the, uh, you know, because that's going to hurt them, right? Well, first of all, no. What people must understand was that in the, the chaos of the aftermath of 2008, we ultimately had all of this talk about liquidity. We have this talk about the government coming to this incredible resolution that took so many, you know, meetings in Congress with everybody coming together in this bipartisan affair that had the world on the edge to come up with the liquidity to save the financial system of the world. And what they did was they delivered what was known as TARP, the Troubled Assets Relief Program. The way that was described to us was that was going to pry provide liquidity and to buy the toxic assets so we could get back to lending and we could restart the economy. Okay. meanwhile, the so-called toxic assets were everything that the financial system created, which were liars loans. I'll give you a couple of small uh, examples. We were literally giving loans like million dollar loans to tomato pickers in California. Wow. Guys that were working for less than minimum wage. And this is an extreme case of this. But we're literally getting loans for a million dollars for these palatial estates because the way these liars loans works, which we show you in the con at www.thecon.tv. And they were all incentivized by what we call modern executive compensation, which took place in the late 90s because of the deregulation that took place during the Clinton administration that created the situation where we created legal theft by deception, which is fraud and legalized it. And oh yeah, by the way, here's another thing that not a lot of people are aware of. Ultimately in the early 90s, 
the legal system and all of their lobbyists and everything came together to make it basically make it harder and harder and harder to create class action lawsuits, particularly as it relates to corporate racketeering. And what they created was this sort of situation behind the scenes that ironically, President Clinton tried to stop, but ultimately it came into being where the, 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 the sort of the, the, the idea was in massive, um, you know, corporate wipeouts, whatever they may be, the government would basically assign some of these marquee law firms to clean up the business, to come up with the settlements so that these companies could move forward because of what we learned during the Enron era, according to Eric Holder, which was the systemic risk because of the idea of what took place with um, uh, Anderson uh, consulting. Remember, they were one of the preeminent uh, consulting firms, one of the big four, and they were up to their eyeballs and fried with Enron. And so when they brought down the uh, criminal convictions on An Anderson, that ultimately it blew up thousands and thousands of people and bankrupted the company that had, you know, what, over 100 years of service, you know, to corporate yeah. America. So, you know, Eric Holder and Lenny Brewer, who was his, you know, assistant, well, attorney general at the, you know, at the Department of Justice, they decided that, you know, there was just too much collateral damage that would come from this. Meanwhile, the American people and hundreds of millions of people around the world were collateral damage. And so what they did was they created these, you know, these these uh, civil suits where they laid out. Yeah, the whole thing was racketeering. The whole thing was was fraud. The whole thing was criminal. But we're not going to actually hold them to criminally account. What we're going to do is we're going to leave that door open for future administrations to determine whether or not they want to actually bring down the DOJ on Wall Street for doing that. But for the moment, to create some sort of thing that we can all move along, we're going to create these settlements. So anyway, that's that part. So the savvy people that created, for example, Americans for Prosperity, which led to the Tea Party, were con concocted by none other than the likes of the Koch brothers, right? And they've been around for a long time, and they're incredibly sophisticated in terms of being able to buy influence, buy interest in, in what their bottom line is, which is corruption, which led to Citizens United and all of these other things. But yeah, there was this conservative movement that was like, wait a second, you're taking all of our taxpayer funded money and you're going to give it to the banks for basically blowing us all up. Are you kidding me? And many of those people also had pensions that had lost everything. And so what they were being um, fed was you got to blame somebody. Yeah. So yeah. Blame these Democrats, they're the ones who sent your jobs overseas. They're the one who destroyed your pension. They're the ones who are the ones who are corrupt. And lo and behold, they weren't wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you talked about Clinton. I think that uh, one of the things that happened under the Clinton administration was they backed out a lot of the uh, a lot of the acts that that were put in place back in the 1930s. I think most famously was the Glass-Steagall Act, which yeah. I think was put in place in, in I think it was 1934 or yes. thereabouts. Um, OK. And, and then it was. Um, it was basically nullified under the Clinton administration. Yeah. And what that is, was that you can't use other people's money that we need in, in, in commercial banking, which is a huge part of everything that everybody needs, obviously. And you can't, the idea of Glass-Steagall was to separate that from high risk investment banking to where you gamble with other people's money. Right. You know, and that's investment banking. It's high risk, high stakes. And, you know, and that's where this whole thing got conflated because after the, during the Clinton administration, that's when the whole thing went on overdrive of what we call um, deregulation, desupervision, and decriminalization, where they just made theft legal in the entirety of the, 
you know, um, white shoe law firms and everything else were basically uh, corralled towards the big money, which are these corporate titans that were, they couldn't bring any class action lawsuits and these RICO, you know, uh, uh, convictions, which would be the death penalty for corporations. That That's what happens in RICO. You kill the, the system because it's a, it's a criminal apparatus. So that's the natural outcome, right? So, but what we didn't realize, and this is in drum roll, please, what we didn't realize and nobody realized and nobody still realizes and what Trump realizes and why those that are on the Trump side, which are the billionaire uh, white supremacist apparatus that operates in the shadows, the Leo Leonard's, you know, the Harlan Crows, and there's so many others that we can, you know, Mercer's and Cokes and Adelson, all of these other guys, you know, they're super involved with MAGA at least as far as Trump, because why? Because they want—they don't want regulation. They don't want taxes. They don't want government up their ass. They want monopoly. That's what they want. But who else is involved with all of those guys? Well, who who benefits, you know, on a global stage? Well, I'll tell you, Saudi does, yeah. as, as does Russia. Do you think that they're highly uh, supportive of a, a Trump administration? Why? Because if Trump gets in and deregulates anything to where the system of law in the United States and conscious and, you know, uh, human rights and all the rest of it, come together, which we thought the democracy, the liberal democracy was of the United States in 2020, you know, all from, you know, let's say the 80s onward. No, we're going to be a corporate fascist state that can uh, enable international laundering. And it all comes down to this. And this is the key, the most key ingredient of everything that we revealed when we got through this entirety of the con, when you understand it's in the massive racketeering enterprise. What the Federal Reserve did was it circled the wagons and it created Hidden meeting after hidden meeting after hidden meeting. There was 98 meetings between Hank Paulson at the time, which was the Secretary of the Treasury. He came out of Goldman Sachs. He ended up being the Secretary of the Treasury for Bush. The same exact thing happened with the Clinton administration before, where we had the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Robert Rubin, become the Secretary of the Treasury, which was Robert, uh, you know, during the Clinton administration. And then, you know, so it was like the United States of Goldman, right? That, uh, Goldman States or whatever they used to say. And the, the long and the short of it is, after they blew up the world, John Paulson, Hank Paulson, sorry, Hank Paulson, Timothy Geithner, who was the former um, uh, president of the New York Federal Reserve, who was, whose main position is to regulate Wall Street. Everything that we're talking about happened under Timothy Geithner's watch. And then there was also Ben Bernanke, who was the newly elected, not elected, newly crowned, newly appointed Federal Reserve Chairman, who came in two years previously after Alan Greenspan had been there since the Reagan administration. And Alan Greenspan created all of this stuff, to be honest with you. And he's where the buck stops. But by the time you get to this moment, and this is the point that I'm trying to get to, in the aftermath of what went from a $4.5 trillion calamity in the housing market based on a fraud pipeline, it became, through derivatives, an $800 trillion global disaster. And so that's what brought the entire world to its knees. And they kept saying liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. They didn't have money, the banks, to loan in their normal business processes because they were all bankrupt. They were all bankrupt through fraud and deception of racketeering of this mammoth real estate pipeline that blew up the world, of which Donald Trump had been involved with every step of the way. We've seen pieces of this in this fraud trial that uh, uh, Letitia James has brought forth last week and the week before. And then ultimately, Donald Trump, well, I'll bring it back to Donald Trump in a minute. But when the entirety of the whole thing, the gears, the liquidity, it was all 
gone. All of the financial system was bankrupt because of the lack of regulation, because we got rid of Glass-Steagall and we got rid of all of the laws that basically knew how this stuff was going to end because we'd actually experienced the Great Depression, which did the exact same thing, which gave us World War II. And here we were again in the late 90s that led to 2008 that has created the world we live in. The Federal Reserve, after 98 secret meetings of those guys, came up with this plan, and this was after TARP, right? It was actually concurrent and then after, but this was the whole play. And Hank Paulson kept walking around business markets and being quoted in Forbes and Fortune and all the rest. We were saying, don't worry, investment community. I've got the secret bazooka. I've got the bazooka that's going to be able to save everything. There was a nod and a wink to everybody in the system that we've got you covered. And what they were doing is they ultimately used what was known as Federal Reserve Act, Act 13.3, which gives the United States the lender of last resort, the lender of last, the, the lender of last resort capacity, which is designed so that if there's a nuclear war, if there's famine, if there's strife, if there's anything else, that the value of the dollar, dollar in our economy will be propped up, that we can handle any emergency. That's what the idea is. It was not designed, and you can look through any statute in the whole situation, to be able to provide tens of trillions of dollars of liquidity to bankrupted, insolvent financial institutions that got that way through racketeering, right. which is what we proved inside and out, which has created this crazy world we've lived in. And so they gave $33 trillion, not $750 billion, which the Obama administration and the media told us they were doing to buy toxic assets. They created $33 trillion to backstop the situation in 2009 through 11. And then they created another $16 trillion in what we call quantitative easing, which was purchasing these toxic assets off the books of the bankrupted financial system because they could never be solvent if they were on their books. So the Federal Reserve picked them up, in which, of course, they create bonds and they sold these uh, the, all of these toxic assets 10 years, uh, you know, over a decade later, because that's how long the cycle is before the markets come back. And then we sold it all to Saudi and China and all that other stuff. And that's how bonds work. But that's the scam on a global scale. And everything that the United States government has been uh, manifesting and demonstrating with Donald Trump, that he's guilty of using illegal reps and warranties and deceptive acts and practices and documentation fabrication through the electoral certification process with uh, criminal attorneys and corrupt judges. That's the state's case against Donald Trump. Everything that they emulated is exactly what we show you Wall Street got away with that our government never held in check. And that's why we're on the doorstep of fascism. And I want to talk a little bit more about fascism. But I know we're, we're running up on, on time right here. I don't know how much time you have left, but we're, we're uh, running up on oh, an hour right here. But uh, there is one thing before we get to fascism, though, all these names you've been throwing out there, that's the proverbial revolving door, right? Yes. That, that occurs because I, I think it was uh, your, your co-producer, the Eric Vaughn, uh, he said this in, a, in an interview with Bill Moyers. He said, you have this line of people coming from the financial services industry into government <clears throat> and then right back out through the revolving door back to the financial services industry. So you're essentially putting the, the fox in charge of the chickens. You're not putting people into the position of, of like the, the head of the SEC. You're not putting people in there that are actually um, looking for or guarding against corruption or racketeering. You're getting the people who are in the middle of this thing into these positions. And they're consistently getting appointed to these positions 
Whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in power, they're consistently getting into these positions. And uh, so that brings us to the doorstep here of, of I think, the, the big thing that I, I think, well, the big conclusion I come up with is um, this is a threat to democracy itself. And, you know, I got to say that the financial crisis was pretty much like a shot of adrenaline to the Tea Party. And it, it's unfortunate because, you know, what, what's happening now uh, as, we, as we teeter on the edge of fascism you're seeing a Tea Party, which, as you say, was, was sort of overshadowed, really, by the, by MAGA Nation. They're not intent. Uh, they're no longer satisfied, or not not necessarily intent, on rooting out the corruption any, anymore. It's gone much beyond that right now. They seek to burn down everything, including the Constitution, and then try to reconstruct something from the ashes. And um, that is very dangerous because anytime you tear down something like a Constitution. Um, you're in a very vulnerable position. And I think that the the forces that you talk about, the fascist forces, are really sort of waiting in the wings at this point, at least from my perspective, waiting in the wings to take over. Now, what's, what's your perspective on that? Well, they've been there the whole time. They've been there our whole lives. I mean, you know, we had a confederacy, don't forget. And then we had the Civil War and then we had Jim Crow and then we had the Civil Rights Movement. And then we ultimately had uh, the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society are these vertical titans of, let's call it, um, you know, plantation capitalism. And, and they just morphed into oil barons, quite frankly, in the 50s in Texas. And then they became very, very good and skilled at what they do in terms of inside pool and how it's all works and who's got the control for what outcome and why. And then the Koch brothers just mastered that situation. And they brought in to all of the people to the fore. I mean, this is a marriage and this is just so sick. And this is how it works. And this is my shortcut. Corruption burrs and fuels fascism. That's it. And in 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 these guys, you know, what we're really looking at is the new robber barons versus the new Confederacy. That's it's 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 oligarchs fighting oligarchs. That's the battle. But the foot soldiers in MAGA, which is ridiculous, and this is my theory on MAGA at the moment, you know, don't forget that to be able to create a network of the housing industry the way it was, you had to have tens of millions of people involved that were complicit in lying, scheming, and grifting. The entire industry were a bunch of people that woke up every day to discern new and inventive ways to lie to get deals done. Yeah, That's why we call them liars lines. And they're all over our society because whether it's selling cars, whether it's selling you know any commodity, whether it's selling uh, anything that's securitized, quite frankly, it's gonna have the same DNA thumbprint. So we're not a democracy. We haven't been a democracy for a long time now. We've always had this battle over, and let me conflate two things real quick. A lot of people think to themselves, well, we've never been a democracy. We've been a representative republic, right? But what they're inferring and what they're telling us, and especially those that don't even understand what they're trying to say, just because they're in MAGA and they've been told to say this and they repeat it because they're sheep, and that's what they do. Ultimately, the representative republic part is- That's constitutional republic, I believe they call it. Sorry, constitutional republic, but it's ruled by the minority. It's this grift of gerrymandering and civil rights violations and all sorts of things to be able to make sure that the guys who get everybody on the school boards and all, up, you know, they can populate this stuff. They can get all of their policy, you know, uh, strung together in a way, in a very comprehensive, concrete way, not too dissimilar to Jim Crow, if you want to know the truth. But I think that's who these guys are in the wings. And you compel that and you combine that with, you know, the guys that are out in the trenches, you know, the developers, the brokers, you know, the entrepreneurs that 
are, you know, there to make a buck. There's games that can fluctuate based on like, I, I remember in the con, we were, you know, um, interviewing a friend of mine who was a broker and all they did was they go based on the number. They had 15 different schemes based on whatever the number was of that day of whatever that interest rate was, depending on someone's uh, credit score, because it was baked into what we called high yield spread premium, because the brokers were incentivized that get paid more and more money to get people into worse and worse deals. We're not talking about a handful of people here. We're not talking about a bad, a, a couple of bad apples in the barrel. The entire barrel yeah. is completely bad. And that's what we've created through perverse incentives, which as you follow it up all the way to the top, to the CEOs, we created with all of this deregulation in the late 90s, we created modern executive compensation. We have perverse incentives where you have the nut, which everybody in this vertical has got to get the, the number. And this is called Gresham's dynamic, where the CEOs can incentivize everybody to do whatever they got to do to get the number. They don't care how many laws they break in the process as long as they get the number and that's what they're incentivized to do. So what do you call that? Racketeering. Yeah. Well, other laws to prevent that. Yeah. But as we can see in Trump, for example, Bonnie Willis just said, yeah, it's going to take me until 2025 to put out what is what I could probably approve on Trump in less than six months. Yeah. That's me as a filmmaker. She, she's going to wait three years to be able to bring that together. I mean, it's like this is absurd when we're on the doorstep of fascism. But why? Because there's so much influence by these guys already in governments by way of all of these mechanics that they've been baked into the situation since the 70s or maybe even the 50s. They've always been there. The grift is to create this outcome to where, no, you don't want a liberal democracy where the rule of law is supreme. They don't want that. Yeah. They don't want smart people to know that there's a law where you can't lie, steal and cheat and deceive to make money to destroy other people that the courts are going to bulldoze. They don't want justice. They don't want equilibrium. They don't want dynamism. They don't want liberty and justice for all. That's the bottom line. Yeah. So from where I'm sitting right now, the American people have got to make a choice. Truth, liberty and justice or the lie. And the con illuminates it all. So let's bring us up. Let's wrap this up here, because I was going to ask you my final question here. And that is, um, what's next in your view? I mean, what can people do at this point to stop the ongoing grifting of America and the trend toward fascism and, and, and indeed really the grifting of the entire world? What can we do as individuals? Well, Dan, thank you for that. And thank you for being you. And thank you for being a citizen, trying to find the answers to complex questions to help change and move the needle, but it's really not that complicated, guys. It's not rocket science, it's racketeering. When you've got the truth, you're bulletproof, and what we are doing, just like the progressive movements back in the late 1800s through union um, rights and civil rights and farmers' rights and equal rights and women's rights and ultimately um, you know, the environmental rights movement all came together between the late 1890s through trust busting, which is uh, Teddy Roosevelt's version, and then we ended up with the New Deal, which was, of course, FDR. What we have got to do is create the clean New Deal. Mm -hmm. We are on the precipice, and we have been, and we're probably far past it in terms of emissions, based on a global financial um, combination with the fossil fuel paradigm, which is really how this whole, whole thing fuels itself. Uh, ultimately, as it relates back to the uh, dollars, the world's reserve currency, and predicated on Saudi being the, Saudi being the swing producer, We've got to create the clean new deal. 
And the Clean New Deal is to reconfigure the paradigm of energy, of uh, democratization of economy, democratization and getting getting back to democracy, but ultimately being able to have a vision and a platform to create the new untouchables, which is a new version to reconstitute the law um, uh, to basically hold power to account. The entirety of the United States experiment was built to hold power to account. That's why you've got separation of powers. That's why you have the American Revolution. That's why you have the Constitution. But of course, there's been guys the whole time from the very beginning, as we know, the two-thirds citizen, I mean, you know, the, the two-thirds act and there was never equality and yada, yada, yada. We always had the vertical, right? We always had the model that there were going to be landowning gentry that evolved. And that ultimately became the corporation to a degree. The bottom line is for democracy to function, the law has to function. And that takes us back to the very beginning of what we talked about. This is why the guy who was my partner invested in what we were doing. He said, if you could find out how we went up by and for the people to up by and for the corrupt corporation, then I'm in. Well, it took me a long time, but I found the $70 trillion revelation that has a complete iron grip on everything. And the only way we can shine a light to the darkness of the ocean of lies and the cryptopia that has complete control that is now leading to fascism is with this light to be able to create a tidal wave populist crusade to purge corruption. And the end game is the clean new deal. You got to get money out of politics. You got to be re reconstitute and reconfigure the paradigm. But ultimately, you have to create a scenario where we hold power to account, starting with Donald Trump. So the Clean New Deal is an organization that uh, that you're starting up at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And we have got a bunch of really smart, very uh, incredibly dynamic people that are now helping to assist move in that direction. But the way I think we can, what we're in the process of doing is, A, you can find me all over uh, YouTube at Patrick Level Truth Bombs The Con. My work is available at www.thecon.tv. We made it free because the only thing people buy are lies, and this has got to penetrate somehow. And then ultimately, I have a follow-up podcast that you can find by just doing a Google search on the new untouchables. I've revealed through approximately what I just revealed to you through the con of the new untouchables, that's approximately 30 hours of information that gives you the details of everything that I've just explained here. But also in my truth bombs, it's a lot of context by where I am watching what's happening in real time and re extrapolating what's going on in the daily sort of echo chamber and reconfiguring how it all emanates from what I'm telling you. There was a coup d'etat, absolutely. There was an effort of a coup d'etat on January 6th, and it was more than Donald Trump. The biggest thing the January 6th committee is, has not been looking into is who were the apparatuses that were helping Donald Trump get all of the police, get all of the, um, you know, the uh, the, the uh, special forces guys and all of the mu muscle that went and basically invaded the Capitol. How did they keep the FBI, the National Guard and, um, you know, the police and everything else from what could have been in a nanosecond taking down the January 6th insurrection, but it happened all day. I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing Went I've ever hours, seen yeah. in my yeah. life, this side of 9-11, which is a whole nother story, but they're all part of the continuum. But the, 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 the J6 committee is not looking into that. They're looking into Trump. The question I continue to ask is, why is Trump still breathing free air, considering everything that we, we've seen displayed in the 91 indi indictments? Why are they moving so slow considering what's at stake? There's got to be another uh, reason for that because 
just take the last 20 years, the power has continued to grip us every which way to Sunday. Enough is enough. We cannot tolerate fascism. And I did see trending yesterday, by the way, on um, on on X. It was really so, somewhat enlightening and inspir- inspirational and invigorating. But MAGA something was was um, trending because there's a lot of people now saying in in short, you know, it, 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 you know, just blurts, you know, how there's no way in hell we can allow MAGA to continue doing this. I think it's le- leaving MAGA was the uh, was the hash mark for that. I think something like that. It was something like that. But yeah. there were millions and millions of people like, that's it. We got to come together. We know they're out there, Dan. Yeah. There's just, unfortunately, what we don't have right now is no matter what presidential candidate is out there, and they're all playing really strange, uh, just wormy games, man. Whether it's Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who doesn't say anything negative about Trump and who I know is involved directly with Steve Bannon, okay? That's all you really should know uh, to discount anything Robert F. Kennedy says, no matter how compelling whatever he says is. Not to mention he's also involved with uh, crypto and and, and blockchain, and that's a whole other thing. Considering yesterday we saw Binance get nailed with another $4 billion uh, fine, the, the, the CEO of Binance paid $50 million. This is on top of FTX, uh, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried going down for what could be 150, 15 years for stealing uh, from his clients $10 billion. It was all a grift. All of yeah. these guys learned from the grift that happened before, and that's the entire global financial system. And yet all of the powers that be are extracting, and this is a global situation. We've got to control what's going on by getting a country up by and for the people back through the Clean New Deal. And so you can find me on X, Patrick Level 1, and we're going to build a website. We're going to build a movement forward. But the long, the short of it is we have got to get people to invest. So, for example, we spent $4.5 million to do the work that the $90 billion a year apparatus of the DOJ, the FBI, the SEC – could not get done and well as the media with billions and billions of dollars that of, of resources. But let's just look no further than Fox, for example. Fox Media just got nailed for what was it, $487 million settlement with the, uh, you know, what's it called, voting booths because of all the grip that was happening and the lies and everything that they did yeah. with Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson and everything else. That was $487 billion, million, billion, $487 million, sorry. Yeah, million, I believe. I think. Yeah, of course. They hit them pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah, but the bottom line is they admitted that their entire vertical is is a deception racket. Yeah. This is yeah. one of the top three, you know, uh, network news in in what we call, um, you know, you know, mainstream media. I guess you could say that is part of the nightly echo cir- circus, and they all operate this way. Every yeah. single one op- operate this way to obfuscate what we're doing. And in the meantime, we've had billionaires spend trillions to loot trillions. That's the system. Look at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is now transparently corrupt. What we've seen with Clarence Thomas, what we've seen with Alito, what we've seen with these billionaire, you know, white supremacist funders. I mean, this is insane, not to mention what's going on in Congress. When you look at George Santos and all of the fraud that he was up against. And then, of course, I mean, come on, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, so let me let me finish with this. When we created the vertical for the 2008 financial collapse. We used to have professionals that were underwriters and people that wrote loans. There was a massive shift in the industry where they literally were looking for people who had fast food on their resume. They wanted to find people that they knew could work long hours, that were hardworking, but that would take direction and had knew nothing about finance. And they just took orders. 
So these burger flippers, and that's not to disdain people who work hard for a living, but they could make more money on one deal in one than they could flipping burgers in a whole year by following the platform of deceit, which were liars loves. Then they weeded out the ones that couldn't do it and they found the best and the best did tons and tons and tons of volume creating these liars loans. I'm convinced that the Republican Party found the equivalent in the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the in the George Santoses. And you know, Ted Cruz is a smart guy that's willing to go to the depths of depravity for his goons down in Texas. But you know, what's her name out of Colorado? Lauren Bobart. Oh, right These now. are not the best and brightest of Americans that are that are writing laws in the midst of all of this chaos. Do we think that is an accident, Dan? Right, right. This is the full scale hijacking by this corruption that has been involved with our power apparatus since the 80s. All of the stuff managed and, and, and evolved from the savings and loan crisis. And it's been one continuation, one thing after the other. And this could be the final nail in the coffin of democracy. So what we're asking people is to find our work and to contribute $13. If you contribute 13, a one-time $13 charge, if you are inspired to come on and to push back in a peaceful way to create a civil rights movement, to purge corruption, this is our only choice before war or before any of this is dictated to us. And I'm not selling the, the guillotines because I think the greatest justice of all would be for us to have a Supreme Court in a department of justice that turns the tables on the corruption. And we basically use the law to go after the CEOs to destroy their um, being in control of the corruption and then to extract their whole wealth. And they'll put them into the cells or poverty where they belong for bankrupting the United States. That would be the greatest lesson of all to the diabolical deception. And that's what the rule of law is supposed to be. So we have got to build this massive tidal wave of people knowledgeable of how the system works. We've got to come together and we've got to come together in mass fast because there is no time. And if we can get one tenth of one percent, you do the math. Let's do 10 percent of what's 10 percent of, let's say, 150 million people. What's 10 percent of 150 million people? 15 million. Right. Times 13 is what? Uh, that would be about, uh, let me see, uh, 130 million plus 650,000, probably roughly 20,000, somewhere in that area. Yeah, well, let's I mean, just 20 call million. It, yeah. yeah, let's just say we could, no, it'd be 200, 200 million. million. Sorry, yes. If we, if, we come up, if we came up with 200 million, honestly, by the way, and I know that sounds like ridiculous, but it's not considering we've got the $29 trillion truth. Guys, there's a thousand billion and a trillion. These guys are spending a billion dollars on a campaign. $200 million is a drop in the bucket to create this populist movement. But we have to have people bought in. That's what the, that, honestly, that's what the Supreme Court said. Money is speech. I kid you not. Nobody's going to listen to us until we get to that level of a populist crusade where millions and millions of people are invested to reveal the truth above the noise of lies so that we can hold power to account. That's the movement. We'll put together all the details. We'll put together every single aspect of what's going on, but we're going to create media that's going to move all of these things forward. I've got access to everybody who can turn this thing upside down, inside out. You'll be able to figure that out if you watch the con, because I dealt with all the guys from the FBI, the DOJ, the SEC, and the guys that are responsible for holding this stuff to account. We got to create the new untouchables to be able to save the day. That's what we're going to do. But the last thing I want to say on the subject, we're going to create a national barnstorming tour where we're going to take this information 
to the people where we're going to do an interactive presentation that's going to be not too dissimilar to what Bob Geldof pulled off in the 80s with the Live Aid situation. If you guys recall, all of the best music came together to create an awareness and to raise money for um, famine in Africa. That was one version. Then there was in the 90s, we had Lollapalooza. Perry Farrell created this carnival-like atmosphere where all of these types of artists and musicians and people came together for an event to where a community came together in celebration. That's what we're going to do, but we're going to do it with, A, the truth. Then we're going to have people that know how to reconfigure the paradigm shift of renewable energy and all of the people who know how to do this from the inside out to end Citizens United and all the corruption that's around us. And we're going to get millions upon millions of people around the country out to learn the truth. And then we're going to end up in Washington, D.C., under the gaze of Abraham Lincoln, of course, who famously quipped, a nation of, for, for, and by the people shall not perish from this earth. This is our chance, our generation's uh, opportunity to take this to the tens of millions of people when we got to get millions of people out to the Washington Mall. We got to do this just like Martin Luther King did. We got to do this uh, in a way that history is calling for. Because if we don't, literally, fascism is going to take over the United States. Corruption births and fuels fascism. We got to crush both at the same time. Very well put. And uh, we do have show notes that go along with the uh, with the with the podcast here. So I will add it to the show notes. And this podcast will be released on uh, November 26, which is, uh, I believe that's a Sunday. And um, we'll have some show notes ready for that and have more information about the con. Also more information about the Clean New Deal. And anything else you want to add to it, then uh, we'll, we'll work it out between you and I before the uh, before the show goes live on Sunday. I apologize for the background noise. Boy, that was that was hard to get through. So thank you so much for your patience. But more more importantly, thank you for your your insight and your uh, your sure. inspiration. Because I mean, it's going to take you, me, and everybody you see who isn't a Nazi who believes in dignity and decency, integrity and liberty and justice for all, and sustainability and beauty. It's going to take all of us to merge in unity, Dan, to be able to defeat the misery of tyranny. And I believe that's our destiny. And I think that's the Clean New Deal. Very well put. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Patrick Lovell, co-producer of the documentary series called The Con. Patrick, thank you again for stopping by today and uh, letting us know all about it. Thank you, Dan. All the best to you. Onwards and upwards. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Each episode, we feature guests and topics that'll help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd just like to sponsor some future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org, or check out our Substack site at democracyonthemove.org, and leave a comment on the episode's page. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again for our next episode. <laughs>